If you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 and we'll begin together in verse number 10. We're here at the last part of the book of Philippians. In fact, we're going to close our series in Philippians this morning. And what that means for us is we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 23 at where we really have about three different topics or themes that are being addressed. So I'm going to try to address each of them fairly quickly. They're good and helpful and should be fruit-bearing in your life if you'll hide them away in, in your heart. You have so many issues addressed in this passage. This is the kind of text where coming to the end of a book, you might just read through quickly and neglect the real meat and potatoes that exist here in these closing verses for us. But I, I hope that we'll not make that mistake together this morning, but that you'll hear clearly from the Lord in verses 10 through 23. If you've found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. There's a lot to say in a short window to say it. I'm going to do my best not to rush, but I need you to listen a little faster than you ordinarily do. Can you all do that? <laughs> Philippians 4 and verse 10. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. And you, Philippians, know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But, I've received, but, but I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant, fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Those brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those from Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. And we have essentially three different topics being covered in this brief passage of Scripture. Perhaps the most intriguing of them all comes in verses 10 through 14, where Paul says, Philippian church, I want you to know that I have the secret to being content. If I said to you this morning, I have the secret to being content, it would pique your interest, right? And that's precisely what Paul describes himself as possessing in these verses. Look to verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly once again, or I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked opportunity to show it. So the background, if you've not been with, with, been with our, I'm tongue-tied this morning, been with our series in Philippians is that Paul is in prison. 
Locked away in a Roman prison, the Philippian church has sent to him through a man named Epaphroditus a love gift that's going to provide for the financial needs that Paul has while in this imprisonment. Paul continues to do gospel advancing ministry even while in this Roman imprisonment and the Philippians are funding his ministry. He says, this experience, this imprisonment has provided the Philippian church with an occasion to demonstrate their care and concern for the Apostle Paul. Not only are they funding his ministry, but they're providing for his material needs while in this imprisonment. Now, often when we go through some hardship, our interest is in what God intends to do in us through this difficulty. But Paul sees this not only as what God intends to do, not only for what God intends to do in him, but for what God intends to open a door for in the Philippians. This has provided them with an occasion to show their care and love for the Apostle Paul, and they've done so generously. In verse 11, the Bible says, I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. In other words, I would have made it without the gift but I'm very thankful that you provided the gift. The reason I would have made it is because I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance. I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot. Now, virtually all of us know, to ha- know how to have a lot. We may not be content with having a lot, but we've mastered, as Americans, the art of having a lot. If you have change on your bedside table this morning, that puts you in the top 8% of the world's population in regards to wealth. We have mastered having a lot, and in spite of having a lot, aren't often very content. But there's some of you who have experienced what it looks like, what it means to have a little. Paul says, both having a lot and having little, I have learned to be content. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, there may not be another verse in all of the Bible that has been as mistreated as Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's become the mantra of athletes after big victories and placarded over scoreboards and various other things, all of which have nothing to do with the context from which the Apostle Paul speaks. Rather than hearing this kind of refrain from the victor after a great game, this might be the kind of thing that you heard from the losing locker room. I am able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Most appropriately, it'd be the kind of thing that's said on the sickbed, in the funeral home, at the graveside, under dark and gloomy circumstances, where things haven't panned out the way we'd hoped they would. Paul says, whether I have a lot or I have a little, it makes no difference. No matter what the circumstances around me may be, no matter what my personal condition may look like, I can bear with, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is in essence saying the secret of contentment is finding strength for every circumstance through Jesus Christ. When Jesus is your everything and everything else is stripped away, it's okay because Jesus is all you need. Now we say things like that. We want that Jesus would be the center of our life, the axis around which our entire world is in orbit. 
But the reality is when things begin to be stripped away in those seasons of having little, when we're not so much well-fed but hungry, when the diagnosis is not what we dreamed it would be, when the outlook is bleak, when our health is declining, when our family is in shambles, the reality is that even there, Jesus is enough. That's what it means to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can bear with whatever comes my way because Jesus is all in the end I really have to have. Now, struggles and difficulties have a refining effect, right? Because even when we say that Jesus is all we need and the stuff begins to be stripped away, we grieve at the absence of the stuff, right? Revealing where the idols and the soft spots in our heart are, where our weaknesses are, where we've become worldly, we quickly get attached to the stuff of this world. And brothers and sisters, you, you may be oblivious to this, but we are far more attached to the stuff of this world than we ought to be. If there's not a daily wrestling within your soul against the attachments of this world, you're, you're losing the battle. And you may be losing in spite of your wrestlings. This world has a gravitational pull on our heart. It wins our affections. Remember when Jesus said that, that no man can love both God and money? The reason is money tends toward mastery. And the stuff of this world tends toward mastery. It wants to master your heart, to be Lord over your life, a place, a position reserved for Jesus and Jesus alone. The secret to contentment is to find that Jesus is all that you need and to divorce yourself from the concerns, the cares, and the stuff of this world. That's the secret. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because Jesus is enough. Jesus is all I ultimately need. In verse 14, he brings this paragraph to a close, stating, Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. The force of what Paul is saying is sort of reinforced by the way he concludes the paragraph. He says, I don't need any of this stuff. I, I, could, I could separate myself from any of this stuff. But he, he doesn't want to come off as ungrateful and so suitably says under the inspiration of the Spirit, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship, by meeting the need that I had. Paul really is of the mind that he can go about the work of kingdom advancing missions apart from the gift or assistance of the Philippian church, but he is certainly aided by their graciousness. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that you and I and us collectively can go about gospel advancing missions very fruitfully apart from the resources that we enjoy at the present. We can do it without them. Now, I'm glad to have them, and I rejoice in God's provision, and certainly we are aided by them often. I celebrate that. I rejoice in that, and you ought to as well. But don't you ever mistake an abundance of resources for the anointing of the Spirit of God. It seems that over the course of the history of church, as our resources have increased, our reliance upon the work of the Spirit has decreased, and we've become inefficient and oftentimes completely ineffective in gospel advancing work, work relying completely on our resources and divorcing ourselves from the things of the Spirit. God forbid. Paul says, I could have made it, but I'm grateful, I'm thankful for your provision, your grace, to me, the secret of being content is separating ourselves from the things of this world. Now, Paul describes in verses 15 through 20, gracious giving and gospel gratitude. That's why I've titled this particular section. Look to verse 15. 
He says, and you, Philippians, know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full. And I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Now, there's a lot there, right? Paul says, thank you for your generosity. There was a time in my ministry when you alone were the providing church. You were the only church, even when I was in Thessalonica and the needs were not as great as they are at the present hour. You were the only church, church at Philippi, that stepped forth to help to meet these needs, to provide for my financial needs. Now, he's celebrating here a degree of maturity on the part of the Philippians. There were times in Paul's ministry, specifically in the city of Corinth, where he worked with his hands to meet his own needs and to provide the finances needed for gospel advancing work, not trusting the maturity of the Corinthian church to understand in its ministerial context what it looks like to give graciously and faithfully toward the work of missions. But the Philippians possessed a level of maturity from the very beginning that lent itself to sacrificial giving. In the early days, no church shared in the matter of giving except the church at Philippi. In verse 16, he says, even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs. And it's not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. Paul says, I seek for you to be accredited in your spiritual account with being partners with me in gospel advancing works. He says in verse 18, I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've provided. Now, this may not seem as crystal clear to you as what maybe it ought to be, but this is an accountability measure. This is Paul, this, this is the business meeting at the end of Philippians, right? This is Paul reporting back to the church at Philippi that the gifts that you have given have been received in full and they are doing what you intended them to do. One of the responsibilities that you have beyond giving is to be a good steward of the gift entrusted to kingdom work, to be aware of uh, how your funds are utilized, to be uh, in some ways a check and a balance as funds are used for gospel advancing work. I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but I want to say to you as believers that your stewardship, your responsibility does not end when you give your gift away. Like you have responsibility beyond that, that collectively we would be in agreement as a body as to how the resources God has entrusted to us would be utilized for kingdom advancing work. Paul says, I want you to know that the gift that you sent got to where it was supposed to get, and it's doing the work that you intended it to do. Now, Paul says in verse 19, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He says to a giving, gracious, generous church, I want you to know as a congregation that my God in heaven will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. 
Paul is thanking the church for their generosity in giving. Paul is reporting to the church that their gift has done what they intended it to do. And now encouraging them that in response to their generosity, there is the promise of God over our life to meet our every need. I was talking to Jason, our missions pastor between services, and I always feel this way. I always have this icky feeling in teaching through passages that address giving. And, and we, we've been robbed of the ability to speak freely about giving and finances as a part of the Christian experience by wolves in sheep clo- sheep's clothing who would fleece the church for their own personal gain. And I hate that, I hate that, I hate that. You need to be on guard against that. Some of you post stuff on your social media accounts from wolves in sheep's clothing who seek to do nothing but fleece the people of God of their resources. There's judgment coming for that kind of ministry. Make no mistake about it. But we, we have to resist and take care how we speak about giving. We have to resist completely cutting this off, not addressing this, not speaking of this, and celebrate the reality that as we give graciously, liberally, generously to gospel-advancing causes, the promise of God hangs over our life. He will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is the only commandment I'm aware of in the Bible where God says, I dare you, try me in this. Trust me and try me and prove me. Give as I've prescribed and see if I won't throw open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing you won't have a place to put it. God says give that way. And church folks, I know that you do. Listen, I I know that in some regards I'm I'm preaching to the choir, but I, I want you to know that as you give generously, you enjoin yourself to gospel-advancing causes, not just locally, but all over the world. This theme of partnership in the gospel that's born out of Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5 is the theme of our Global Impact Conference. And about a month from now, you'll have a chance to hear from missionary personnel from all over the world. It's a great opportunity, and you should make every effort to be here and to be a part of that conference. It's one of the rare instances when you'll be able to hear from those folks in the uttermost parts of the world and and hear a report of how your gracious giving is impacting the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I say in every starting point class, it's our new member class, in every one of those classes I say that the cooperative program, which is the missions funding arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, is the most ingenious missions funding organization in the history of the church. And I believe that with all of my heart. But if there's one shortcoming that the cooperative program has, is that it allows us to fund without a real personal connection. And I want you to know this morning that even when you cannot see it, that your graciousness in giving is accrediting to your account partnership in the gospel in some of the darkest and most dangerous places of the world. Give and give generously and never forget the promise of God over the life of the generous giver. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In the latter part of our text, verses 21 through 23, this is the kind of passage again that we might read over quickly and neglect to spend much time with. 
But there's some sweet truths here in verses 21 through 23. Paul says, greet every saint. By the way, who are the saints? It's not a football team in New Orleans. It's not a special class of Christian venerated by some ecclesiastical body. It's you and it's me washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Sainthood is not about the works that you have done. That's why it's not about an ecclesiastical body looking into the details of our life and determining that this is a special class of Christian. Salvation, sainthood, is not about what we have done. Sainthood is about being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when the Father looks upon us, He sees us as saints, not as the sinners we so clearly are in the flesh. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Those brothers who are with me greet you. Indeed, all the saints greet you, but especially those from Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul says, the saints who are with me greet you. And Paul has already been greeted by those saints who are in Philippi. Now, if you do the math, there are 777 travel miles between the city of Rome and the city of Philippi. Now, that's a long way by today's standards, but it's a really long way by the travel standards of the Apostle Paul's day. I mean, you're riding boats without motors and mules to get where you're going. 777 miles is a long way. And Paul says, from all the way over here in Rome, I want you to know that these fellow saints, these brothers, they greet you. There is a unity that exists, a bond established in the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit that can traverse the spans of many, many miles, racial, ethnic, language, geographical boundaries. Brothers and sisters, by faith in Jesus Christ, we have become as new creatures a part of a new humanity where our identity is bound up not in where we came from, not in where we were born, the language that we speak, or the color of our skin. Our identity is bound up in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We're not white Christians or black Christians or Hispanic Christians or American Christians or non-American Christians. We don't need all the adjectives. We are just Christians washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And if there were ever an hour when our world needed to hear this message, it is now. Paul says there's a bond, a fellowship, a unity that exists within the body of Christ. It can't be replicated elsewhere. And you've experienced this. You've experienced this on the field. Sign up for a short-term mission trip in 2021. And go to the other side of the world. And you meet a brother, a sister in Christ. And sing and worship Jesus together. The languages may be different, but the heart is the same. There's a kinship that's enjoyed in an instant as you meet a brother, even in another cultural context. Paul says, all the saints greet you, but especially those from Caesar's household. Now, there's times in ministry, perhaps areas in ministry, people that you meet in ministry, you almost think of them as low-hanging fruit. You know, people who've come up under circumstances where they've been conditioned over time 
to accept the, the, the uh, underpinnings, the foundations for the gospel. And so they're sort of ripe for the picking. You're just sharing with them the promises of the gospel. And, and you expect, you have every expectation that in due time, this person will trust and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. Now, if you were a missionary in the city of Rome, let's say, let's put on Paul's sandals for just a moment. And you're looking around the city of Rome for low-hanging fruit. You're not looking at Caesar's household. Virtually every statement of Jesus' lordship in the New Testament. Y'all with me? Tracking with me? When the New Testament says Jesus is Lord, not only is that a theological statement of truth, it's a political statement of opposition to the state, which was constantly saying Caesar is Lord. Now, Paul comes to Rome and says, Jesus is Lord. Paul has gone into the headquarters of the opposing political party and said, Jesus is king, bow the knee. And God has gone before him by the work of his spirit, and some have believed. In the most unlikely of places, under the most unlikely of circumstances, God has called to himself by faith some from Caesar's household. Charles Spurgeon was once asked back in the 19th century, in the days of his preaching ministry in England, if there were any Christians in the Anglican church. And Spurgeon said, sometimes God has his sheep starving in the strangest of places. Here we have sheep being reared in the strangest of places, in Caesar's household. Now, I want you to think about the, the, the context for the Apostle Paul's ministry here. Paul is in isolation. Paul's mobility has been restricted by the circumstances of his life. He can't go the places he once could go. He can't do the things he once could do. Does that sound familiar to you? Here, here the apostle is limited in his mobility and is still faithful about the business of kingdom, kingdom advancement, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling other people that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that by his substitutionary death and resurrection, we may be forgiven of our sins and bound for heaven. Now, I, I have felt such restrictions. I, I felt so bound up, so pinned in over the last months by this whole COVID craziness and frustrated with an inability to move about and, and to share in, in freer ways that I once enjoyed. The Apostle Paul is not limited by such things. And brothers and sisters, we don't have to be either. In fact, if you think about the New Testament, most of the New Testament is written because the human author, inspired by God, could not go somewhere they would have otherwise went. And so a letter is written. There's other means of communication to make sure that others hear the message. There's an urgency about kingdom work all over the New Testament, and there ought to be an urgency about our participation in the work of the kingdom as well. We can speak in such glowing terms and we can be such a joyful people, but there is an underlying bad news that stirs within our heart this urgency to get the message of the gospel out there. That apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ, 
Every man, woman, boy, and girl would perish in a sinner's hell. But that there is hope through Jesus that by his blood we might be forgiven of our sins and bound for heaven. The well-being, the life, the eternity of those about us is at stake. Paul is not kept back by his immobility. He's not kept back even by an imprisonment. God has called together a people from every nation, every social class, every ethnic background, made us blood brothers together by the blood of his son that the world would know that Jesus Christ is king. So go tell, go tell, go find someone and tell them of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To think about sort of this pattern that we've observed in Philippians over the past several weeks with regards to missions and sharing the gospel. This is who we are, right? Missions and sharing the gospel. Begin in chapter 1 with Paul praying for the church at Philippi, thanking them for their prayerfulness for him. They're praying that the lost would be saved, that the church would be engaged, that they would go forth with the gospel on their lips, praying for the advancement of the kingdom celebrating what Jesus has done for them. Chapter 2 is focused almost exclusively on the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ is God's only Son, God incarnate, God in the flesh, God as man. And that He died as our substitute, not for crimes that He had done, but for our sins, for my sins and for yours, that Jesus was our substitute on the cross, that at the cross Jesus was treated as though he had lived your life in order that by faith the Father might treat me and you as though we had lived the life of Jesus. That on the third day Jesus rose again from the grave, that by faith in him we have the guarantee of our own resurrection. Yes, he warns in chapter 3 against those dogs, those false teachers who would undermine the message of the gospel, but not before he calls on us to be lights in the world, that we would be busily about the business of sharing this good news message with every person we come in contact with. In chapter 3, he celebrates the glory of knowing Christ, what it means to know Christ, and calls the church to persevere in the message and the ministry to which God has called us. Pursue the prize of the upward call of God on our life. Tell every man, woman, boy, and girl that Jesus Christ is King. In chapter 4, he calls us to unity, to be together, to be on the same page, because in unity we have greater effectiveness. We're more efficient at ensuring that every man, woman, boy, and girl knows that Jesus Christ is king. He closes with a similar exhortation and encourages us with the news that even in Caesar's household, some have trusted in Jesus as the Lord over their life. We get so wrapped up in so much stuff, guys, and you got program this and program that and activity this and activity that, and you've got 60 hours a week at work and extracurricular activities, and now we're back in school, and that's all crazy, and you want to kill the kids in the morning. I got all that. But let us be careful that we don't lose sight of the main thing, of the main message. This is a battle. This is a war. This is a war within your heart this morning. The main thing The mission of the church and the purpose of our life is to know Jesus and to make him known. May God in heaven find us faithful in this mission. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you that you have revealed yourself through your son, Jesus. God, I pray that that this morning he would be known 
someone here would know him and treasure him and see and understand that life everlasting is to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, the forgiveness you've extended us as members of the body. And I pray, God, that you would help us to detach ourselves from the things of this world, settle our eyes and our heart on the person of Jesus. God, I pray that he would be everything to us. God, even tomorrow, when the world begins to tug and pull at our affections once more, God, I pray that you would help us to resist that by the Spirit, to treasure and to cherish Jesus with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind, to hold the concerns and responsibilities of this life in the proper balance and keep them in the right place to maintain the perspective you'd have us to have, but that in everything, Jesus would have the preeminence in our life. God, grant it so. Give us the wisdom and the discernment to know what this kind of life looks like. Give us a gospel urgency that would compel us to tell with everyone we meet of what Jesus has done for us and what he's promised he could do for them. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen and amen.